2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father. Uh, we ought to always give thanks for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's church, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Let us pray. Father, I can imagine Paul as he's penning these words a second time to a church that had been suffering and enduring a lot of persecution and misunderstanding and confusion about what it means to, to live this newfound Christian faith. And much like the church in the 21st century, as we are living in a state of sometimes wondering what, how do we live in the context of a changing and growing um, society in which the gospel is becoming less and less part of society. I pray, Lord, that the words that you wrote to Paul to remind this church, to encourage them, is the same words that you would encourage us. Uh, to remain faithful, to have hope, to remain firm in what we believe. And so guide us, Lord, as we uh, enter our second, uh, uh, this, uh, second book, uh, because this book is rich, Lord, for what you have to say. So we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. What is your favorite sequel? When you think about a, a movie, um, what is the thing that, that you love following up with? Um, usually uh, a movie, a blockbuster, comes out with another blockbuster. And this week, uh, the movie called The Avengers, or this past weekend, uh, came out. And, and the first weekend had $1.2 billion. Sometimes sequels actually do better than the original the previous winner of, of, of the biggest box office was actually the movie that it preceded called Avengers Infinity War, and that was only $640 uh, million. So it doubled in the second round. And when you think about sequels, oftentimes what excites us about sequels is that we are building upon the story that we have already seen. Uh, Time Magazine had an article last year entitled, 35 sequels that are better than originals. Now, for those of you who enjoy watching movies, um, you know, some of the greatest films, they said, are actually sequels. Uh, movies like The Dark Knight, Godfather Part Two, Toy Story 3, Empire Strikes Back, Good, Bad, and The Ugly, all were best time, uh, all-time best lists, and they were all sequels. Sequels are better than the original because oftentimes they build upon the story that audience love, franchise characters. You want to know what happens next to the story that you had just followed. Perhaps the movie throws a hero into a, a daunting situation that challenges their belief about something that was in the original. And when you think about a sequel, that's what you think of, is, is what's happening next. Well, when I think about the second letter to any book in the Bible, it really is a sequel, isn't it? Because you're following up of what had already been previously written. And so we are now launching into the sequel of 1 Thessalonians, which is called 2 Thessalonians. And the title of our series is going to be called The Return. Now, when you read 2 Thessalonians, you have a lot of the common themes that the first book had. Uh, usually when you watch a sequel, they begin the sequel with a recap of the previous uh, story. And in, in some ways, the recap of the story 
is very similar. Uh, as many of you uh, who are in the First Thessalonians series, uh, you know that Paul was on this missionary journey. So if I could have the map up of, of Paul's journey, this is sort of kind of where Paul went. Paul went from uh, down in Jerusalem all the way from Antioch, and he kind of circled the, uh, the Asia, um, um, Asia Minor, which is really where uh, modern-day Turkey is. And he was preaching the gospel there in his first missionary journey, and the churches were growing, churches were thriving. So Paul wants to circle back. And as he's circling back, he, one night he has a dream. In this dream, an angel of the Lord appears in Acts chapter 16. And this angel of the Lord says to Paul, Paul, I want you to stop there, and I want you to come to a different place. And this place is, is what we would call Macedonia. And for those of you who know uh, sort of the, the geography of Europe, that's where modern-day Greece is. And Macedonia is also the place in which uh, Alexander the Great was from. His father, Philip, was also the king of Macedonia. And so it was a very famous place. And so Paul is now redirected in his second missionary journey to the series of churches in the Macedonia area. And this is where the first books of the New Testament are written. So one of the first places that Paul goes to is a city called Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, as Paul goes... He preaches in the synagogue, and Jews become uh, saved, and then he goes to the Gentile courts. They become saved. These small group of Christians begin to form in the city. Growing, uh, one of the concerns of the city is this, that this newfound cult that they call is dangerous. So the Jews were concerned, as well as the Gentiles, and so they start looking for this instigator, this guy named Paul. And Paul happened to be staying in a guy, his name is Jason. And so they go to Jason's house, and they try to find Paul, but they can't find Paul. So they drag Jason out in Acts chapter 17. And one of the things that, that this book says in the book of Acts is, where is this guy who's turning the world upside down? And it's a great commentary on what Christianity is all about. That we are to turn sort of the world upside down with a worldview that is different than the world. Well, of course, they couldn't find Paul because Paul had already left. And Paul was making his trek all the way down to the southern part of Greece to a city called Corinth. And it is at Corinth that Paul pens the first book of the book of Thessalonians. And really, uh, this is the first, uh, Paul that, uh, first book that Paul writes. And as he's writing this book, he's answering some key questions that these early church had. And the questions of, of how do we live as Christians in this new society in which Christianity is in opposition to society. And so as people are asking these questions, he sends Timothy, one of his disciples, to ask some of these, answer some of these questions. And so Timothy comes back to Paul with a series of questions, and this is what this book, first book was about. Answering some of the questions that they had. So the questions of, of what happens to a, a church, or what happens to a Christian when they die. That was a big question, and especially w- in the midst of persecution. And so he begins to answer that. What happens to uh, Christians when, when Christ comes back? Is Christ coming back? What happens to Christians in the light of living in a society that is morally impure? How do we set ourselves apart from that? And so in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul addresses some of these Major concerns. Well, you would think that after one letter that every question would be answered. But you know in life that doesn't always happen. More questions come up. And so this book, the second book, was written a few months later. Encouraging the church 
about the hope that they have in Christ, the hope in the gospel. Uh, A few months later, he begins to write this book, and he's answering some deeper questions. And what happened now in this book, in this time, as the the Christians were now responding to Paul, um, persecution had started to increase. And as persecution is increasing, there are a group of uh, people in the church that was actually causing trouble. And the irony in 2 Thessalonians is this, that the greatest threat to the church was not outside persecution. That the greatest threat to the church was actually internal persecution from false teachers. And so these uh, leaders in the church began to uh, take some of Paul's writings from 1 Thessalonians, and they began to sort of uh, make up things or reinterpret Paul's literature. And as a result, the church was being misled by these false teachers. And so Paul then has to write the second book to bring them sort of on track. And that's what this book is about, especially in in terms of the focus in terms of the end times. So as we look at um, this book, it's important to see kind of the maturation of a church that is now asking deeper questions in their faith. As one commentator uh, said, you know, we can see areas in which the Thessalonians were confused even after the first letter. Uh, and, he, and, and this is a picture of really the Christian life. There is no such thing as quick fix solutions. There is no silver bullet. The gospel is a seed that takes root in our lives and over a period of time produces fruit. So the Thessalonian believers needed two letters, many sermons, numerous services, lots of Bible studies, and they still struggled with faith like we do. The second letter is instructive because the Thessalonians' area of confusion, which are struggle today, Paul addresses these concerns. In other words, this book is really a a reminder that we always need to be learning. We always need to be growing. And that what we learned uh, uh, previously may not apply now, that now the questions may be a little bit different. So as the church was now suffering, the deeper question was, okay, how does this suffering make sense? So what we want to do is is just kind of give you a broad overview. And in these upcoming weeks, we're going to kind of break it down into smaller chunks. So what is the theme of this book? Well, it's similar to the theme of the first book, which is hope in in Christ, and especially hope in Christ's future return. And so if I were to kind of summarize this book, I would say this, is that what you hope for is what you live for. What you hope for is what you live for. In other words, the things that you place your hope in is the thing that drives you in your life. So what are you hoping in? And so Paul begins to address this in this book. The things that we hope for are much more eternal in purpose. So that the present suffering that we encounter or difficulties are small in comparison to the greater hope that we have. So let me walk you through. If you have your uh, Bibles, just turn to 2 Thessalonians. And just give you three simple overviews. And we'll cover chapter by chapter. And then in the next uh, upcoming weeks, we'll cover Verse by verse. So Paul begins the letter the same way he began the previous letter. And he's rejoicing with what God is doing. By the way, the Thessalonian church was a remarkable church. It was, it was a small church. And yet they were so faithful in their witness that other churches in the area heard about the Thessalonian church. And so Paul begins, like he said in verse 1, to the church of Thessalonians in God and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
grace and peace to you from God, Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because of the faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you for each other is growing. This church was a pretty amazing church. That no matter how difficult the situation came, the average Thessalonian Christian, they were growing in their faith, and they were demonstrating their love. But he moves on here, and the thing that he's grateful for is how they were dealing with persecution. He says in verse 4, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. The first thing that we note about this church is this, that the persecution didn't decrease, actually increased. And so the first chapter really deals with the theme that we have hope beyond persecution. That we have hope beyond persecution. That persecution is relentless. And Paul reminds the church that we have to understand the context of the persecution that we endure, that we shouldn't be overwhelmed by persecution. That persecution is is, is a part, sort of the curriculum of the Christian life. In the first letter, we saw that um, the book had was a little bit longer, five chapters that spent 89 verses of encouraging words to this struggling church. But in the second letter, we only have three chapters and only 47 verses. But the theme of suffering is what unites these churches, uh, these books together. And so Paul continually says to them that their endurance of of suffering and persecution is really a... uh, demonstration of of the true gospel. That the seed of the gospel that was planted in them is now bearing fruit. And here's the thing about persecution, that persecution is the soil in which the gospel that takes root begins to grow. And so throughout this book, we see that he wants to remind them uh, a little bit later on that the suffering is the evidence of their righteousness. And you know, a lot of times we as Christians, I think, avoid persecution. Or we avoid suffering and we avoid trials because we see that almost as that of being a judgment of God. One of the things that the scripture reminds us is that suffering is part of the God's often, um, the bigger part of God's plan. That he allows suffering and persecution and difficulties to happen so that our faith can be refined. And he also reminds us in verse 5 and 7 that indeed God consider it... uh, that those who afflict us, they will be judged, they will be punished, but also that we have to remember that when we suffer, that we also suffer with Christ, as well as those who have gone before us. So Paul helps us to see that suffering is working out of our salvation. The ungodly will be punished, and the godly will be saved to that day in which Christ returns. And so throughout the New Testament, one of the themes of suffering is this, that, that often God allows suffering as a validation, the truthfulness of the gospel. If the gospel is true, it will not only sustain us in persecution, but it will also continue to grow us. That the means by which we are nurtured and developed as Christians is, is through the hard challenges and difficulties of life. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice. 
though now for a little while, that you may have had to suffer grief in various trials, so that your character of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So even though suffering and grief and difficulties, all these things that we would consider negative are oftentimes the means by which our faith is purified and developed. Um, One man wrote this poem uh, where he says, when God wants to drill a man, thrill a man, and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world may be abased, what is his method? Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him. And with the mighty blows, uh, converts him into trial shaped of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying, and he lifts his beseeching hands. How he bends, but he never breaks. When is good, he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses with every purpose by his very act that he induces. God puts a man in a very difficult situation. And as I think about this in my own life, I remember as a young pastor, one of my pastor mentors reminded me, to those whom God uses greatly, he hurts deeply. Now, it's not that our God is a sadistic God, a God who takes pleasure in seeing his children suffer, but one of the things that I realized is that the suffering and the difficulties of life create one of, either, one of two things. It either creates greater dependence on him, or it causes us to move away from him. And for those of us, when our faith is renewed, it's, it's what draws us to God himself. So the theme that we're going to see here is this, that he's reminding the early church, yes, you are going to suffer. It's part of the, the sort of the Christian life. But as you suffer, you have to remember that God is using that suffering for a greater purpose. So whatever you're going through in your life, be reminded of that. All things do work together for good, for those who love God and called according to his purpose. And so that's what the theme of chapter one is about. He gives thanks in response to the suffering that the Thessalonians are dealing with. Then he moves to chapter two. And chapter two uh, is, is interesting because now the persecution is not necessarily internal. Now the persecution, I mean, I'm sorry, it's not external, it's internal now. There are people rising up in the church that are causing misunderstanding and misconception of what Paul had said. And so in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he begins with the statement, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and out being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. In other words, Paul had written in the first letter uh, about the second coming, that Christ was going to come back. And so the coming of Christ should prepare us to live holy lives for the present. If Christ is going to come any moment, then we need to be on guard of how we live. And that's what he wrote. But what happened was some people now were sort of, in our modern day, we would call identity theft where they took Paul's writings and they twisted it. And they said, the day of the Lord has already come. And so these Christians were confused. What is true and what is false? And I think one of the things that that the New Testament reminds us is that greater than persecution, what's greater than persecution for often in destroying the church 
is the persecution of those who are false teachers. In other words, false teaching was of greater concern in the New Testament than external persecution. Because what external persecution did is it refined our faith. But what uh, this deception of the church, of these false teachers, actually destroyed the faith. And so Paul, Peter, John, all the writers in the New Testament addresses this simple fact that we need to be on guard. We see this even in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Paul, Jesus even says this, watch out for false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're like ferocious wolves. The greatest danger to the church, even in the 21st century, is the very same danger in the first century, which are people that take the scripture out of context and that mislead us in what we believe. Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul says in, an, in one of his sermons to the Ephesian elders, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but there are also false prophets among you, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Like I said, every New Testament book deals with this. And so in chapter 2, now he's going to bring clarification of what he means by the day of the Lord. And so we look at really our hope. We have hope because of the day of the Lord. In other words, Christ is coming back. He may not be coming back right now, but he is coming back. And he could come back at any moment. And that should prepare us to live holy lives. And that's the second major theme of this book. What is your hope in? And I think for the, for the Christian, one of our hope is in this understanding that the future is, is, is bright for a Christian because the future has already been defined and declared um, that Jesus has become victorious. And for that, we celebrate. We have hope. And so then now he moves to chapter 3. And in this final chapter, he gives an interesting warning. We have hope to become productive. He says this, that if Christ is coming back, then how we live our lives in the present does matter. So how do we live our lives? This is where the false prophets came and sort of led the church. Well, Christ has already come back, so you, you don't need to do anything. Just kind of sit back and enjoy, enjoy your life. Indulge in, in, in your sins. And in chapter 3, Paul switches the topic and he says this, if Christ is coming back, then that should cause us to be more productive rather than be lazy and idle. So in chapter 3, uh, verse 6, he says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and who does not live according to the teaching you have received. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were left with you. So Paul now begins to build on the theme that he started in 1 Thessalonians, of these Christians who were somewhat idle or lazy. And, and what happens when you're idle and lazy is you start doing unproductive things and sometimes even destructive things. And so the church, in many ways, those who were idle, they were spreading gossip, they were spreading heresy. And so what they were not doing was being productive. And I think one of the things that we want to talk about in chapter 3 later on is that as Christians... That one of our roles in society is to be productive members of society. That God has given each one of us a task. 
And the thing that excites me about the Christian life is this, that every single one of us, no matter what we do, are called by God. Uh, you know, we often think that those who are in ministry are the ones who are called. But ministry is not a job. Because every job is a ministry. And every role that we have in society, whether we are a teacher, whether we are working in business, whether we are even uh, staying home, uh, whatever our role is, is the ministry that God has called us. And here's the greatest myth, I think, for a lot of Christians, is that we separate those who are called in pastoral ministry or in, in, in spiritual ministry to those who are not called. And so we have the secular and sacred divide. Here's the thing that Paul reminds us, is that every single one of us are called by God, and our lives do matter, and our lives do need to make a difference in the world around us. So there's a biblical theology of work that we're going to be talking about, because every single one of us are called by God. So the question is this, as we close our, kind of our overview, is what do you hope for? What do you place your hope in? Because what you hope for is what you're going to be living for. So if your hope is in the wrong thing, if your hope is in money, that's what you're going to live for. If your hope is in security, that's what you're going to live for. And for us as Christians, our hope is in one thing, or actually one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And if you think about the hope that sustains us, the thing that allows us to, uh, to continue to live on, it's something that is eternal, not something that is temporal. Because when life gets difficult, when life gets uncertain, when life gets confusing, the only thing that we can cling to is something that is absolutely certain. And for us, a few weeks ago, we celebrated the greatest event of history, and that was the resurrection of Jesus. And for us, and, and Paul reminds us in this in 1 Corinthians, if Christ had not risen from the dead, then everything we believe is really just a big, one, one big lie. But it's the resurrection it's because Jesus rose again that he's going to be coming back again. I hope um, none of you ever have to deal with a loss of a, of a child or a loved one. Somebody once said, a parent should never outlive their child. And in some cases, the, the tragic happens. A few years ago, Rick Warren, uh, Pastor Saddleback, uh, and his uh, wife Kay went through a devastating loss of their 27-year-old son, Matthew. Uh, Matthew had been struggling um, with depression and mental illness all his life. And at the age of 27, um, took his own life. After a year uh, of tragedy, uh, Rick uh, said in one of his uh, talks, I have often been asked, how, how can you make it? How can you keep going in your pain? And I've often replied, the answer is Easter. You see, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Jesus was the day, Friday was a day of suffering, pain, and agony. Saturday was a day of doubt and confusion. But Easter, Sunday, was a day of hope and joy and victory. And here's the fact of life. You will face these three days over and over again in your lifetime. And when you do, you will find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. One, what do I do in the days of pain? Two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? Three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? And he says the answer is the resurrection. It's the hope that we have in Jesus. 
And so I want to encourage you, like the church in Thessalonians, who were asking the very same questions that we were. Question of pain, question of doubt, the question of joy. That really only one person can answer that question. The only one person who has conquered death, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, this past uh, two weeks, I was um, overseas. I was in, um, in New Zealand, and I was in Australia. I was preaching at a church, and in this church, uh, a very unique church in, in New Zealand. Uh, much like ours, it's a very multicultural church. And I had a chance to talk to a lot of these Christians who are from all across the world in some of the most difficult, challenging places. And as I were recounting their story, it was the one theme that remained evident. It didn't matter whether you were from Iran, whether it didn't matter whether you're from China, it didn't matter whether you're from the Middle East or from Africa. One thing that allowed them to sustain their faith and joy was an understanding that it was Jesus that sustains them. And so as we go through this book, let us keep that focus that what you hope for is ultimately what you live for.